How many of you guys know what the word consecrated means? Just by a show of hands. Consecrated, uh, in the original biblical language, it's just to, to consecrate. It's just the verb form of, of holy. It's to make holy. To, or if you wanted to make up a word like sometimes I do, to holify. You know, in the original Hebrew, it's, the words are almost identical for holy and consecrate. It's just the adjective and the verb. And um, it's not a word we use very often, but truly that is what our desire, our heart's desire is for this season, is that we would be a people that are set apart. That's what holy means, set apart, distinct. That we would be set apart during this time as we pursue the Lord in prayer and as we pursue him in fasting. You know, <clears throat> for those of you who don't know, um, this is a very special week for us, for this community. Uh, this, this week, as we are heading into this week, starting tomorrow is Seek Week. And um, it's, uh, it culminates with uh, our annual prophetic conference, which is called The Sound. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. But that's what we have coming this week. And it's a, it's a precious time. And it's kind of the, the grand finale of these 24 days of, of prayer and fasting that we've been in. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. For now, my name is Seth. Hello. I've got to meet a lot of you, and um, I hope I get to meet all of the rest of you. Uh, I serve as one of the pastors here on staff, and today is my great privilege to be preaching at our Post Falls campus for the very first time. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to be able to preach here today. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I've just, I've only, this is only my third time to the Post Falls campus as a whole, and so I just, it's so precious to me every time I come here. Um, there's just something special about what God is doing here. And I just want to take a moment before we jump into the word to give you, extend my, my heartfelt gratitude to you for coming and being with us this morning. Um, I remember when Heart of the City Church met in a living room in the summer of 2006. It's where my parents still live. We met in a living room with our church planting team, 12 adults. And it's like, as we've started this Post Falls campus, it's almost like we've been able to re-enter or revisit the church planting season. And it's been such a good and healthy thing for our church to not get too comfortable, to not just sit back on our dregs and go, well, this is functioning pretty well. This is a pretty well-oiled machine. No, no. Shake things up. Let's go to Post Falls. Seriously, it has been, I think that this has been one of the healthiest things that has happened for our church in a long time. In a long time, it's been such a beautiful gift. I want you to know that this Post Falls campus and what happens here is not just a blessing to the people who come here. It is a blessing to the whole of Heart of the City Church. So thank you. Thank you for being with us this morning. It means so much. Ready to get into the word? Yeah, I love the word. I, I can't do anything without it. I mean that. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I'm not just quoting a scripture to you. I'm telling you my testimony. Man does not live. Seth does not live on bread alone. Seth lives on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I pray that that would be your story as well. 
We're going to be uh, reading primarily from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 this morning, and uh, I'd love to invite you to turn there with me if you have your Bible with you. And as you're doing that, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is kind of close to the end of your Bible. It's in the back little skinny part. As you're doing that, I want to just give you a little bit of background on 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Corinthians as a whole. 1 Corinthians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. So that's the idea is Idaho, Idahoan, Corinth, Corinthian. Get it? Got it? Good. You see, the church in Corinth, they had some issues. I don't know if you've seen this meme going around, but it's just, I've been getting a kick out of it. Uh, There's this meme going around where it says, if Paul wrote a letter to the American church, or wait, what was it? What is, how does it go? Uh, Yes, that's it. If the apostle Paul was still around, the church would be getting a letter. I've been like, yeah, yeah, but that's okay. A lot of churches got letters. First Corinthians, the letter was uh, pretty corrective in nature. They had some jacked up things happening morally, some weird stuff. I'll let you read about it. Um, but also, there was need for them for correction in the way that they were honestly worshiping, the way they were coming together, and they were basically following the teachings of the apostles and the teachings of Jesus, that there were some things that were out of order, and that were missing, and that were messed up. And so in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing some of that, and he specifically is addressing spiritual gifts. And in chapter 14, it's two spiritual gifts that he gives most of his focus to, and that is the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. So we're going to begin at the the very start of this chapter, starting with verse 1, and we're, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Will you stand with me for the reading of the word? I love the beginning. Before he talks about any of the gifts, before he talks about anything that we can do because of the power inside of us, what are his first words? Pursue love. Pursue love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. This is God's word. You may be seated. Seek week. We're headed into it. Would you guys put up the the seek week times? Hey, here at Heart of the City, we believe that prayer is the engine room of the church. We don't, We don't have the sound just as some cool attraction. We believe that when we come together to pray, things actually shift. 
There's a narrative out there that would cause you to believe that prayer is only a discipline and it's just to make you mature and grow. Both of those things are true, but not by themselves. Prayer actually changes things. And that's something that we have to get in our spirits. It's not just your daily devos. When we pray, when we commune with God, did you know that the prayers of believers actually fill the bowls of heaven like incense? Let me just present to you this idea. Our prayers shift the atmosphere of heaven. So I'd ask you just to consider, we're gonna get together and pray seven times corporately during Seek Week. We're gonna pray tomorrow at 7 a.m. and then Tuesday through Thursday at seven and noon. Would you consider coming if at all possible, if you don't already have, if you don't have to work during those times, whatever the case might be, would you consider joining us in prayer? Here's an even more difficult ask. We've been in a season of 24 days of prayer and fasting. Fasting, I get it. I get it. 2024, United States of America, isn't that kind of an archaic practice? You know, like, wait, you mean you actually, like, don't eat? You actually don't eat. It's pretty crazy but it's actually a really beautiful thing. And um, I would just encourage you, if you've never fasted before or if you haven't joined us in the fast yet, you should pick up a fasting booklet on your way out today or you can also access it on our website, but just consider. You know, I understand that there's people with certain um, eating disorders or certain dietary restrictions, and, but there are ways that you can practice fasting without only just drinking water for 24 days. Just so you guys know, I have not only been drinking water this whole time. I'm not going to tell you exactly what I'm doing, but I would just encourage you, find a way to engage with the fast and do that. It's not too late. We still have till Friday. Would you just consider it? Very few heads nodding, very few words shared back. Just consider. I'm not even asking. I'm not asking you to sign a contract. I'm just asking you to consider doing something that Jesus assumed we would do. He didn't say if. He said, when you fast, like you guys are obviously going to be fasting. So I'll just give you a little bit of a tip about when you fast. I'd say if Jesus assumed we were going to do something, we darn well should do it. We've been doing the sound prophetic conference for about 12 years. Uh, Not about exactly. (laughs) Yeah, and we've been doing it in quarterly that whole time, but I am so excited that for the very first time, the sound is coming to Post Falls next Sunday. Next Sunday, this coming Sunday, the 28th, the sound is coming to Post Falls at the 909-1111. For that morning particularly, we're going to have two of the prophets here and two of the prophets in Coeur and it's going to be wild. And I think you should come. Friday and Saturday night are just going to be in Coeur d'Alene, but on Sunday we're at both campuses. Out of curiosity, how many of you have been to the sound before? Okay, so a majority, but not as heavy as a majority as the first gathering. Okay, good to know. And what we want to do this weekend, kind of our goal, is we want to make sure that we're all on the same page as we go into next weekend with how we're preparing ourselves and how we're kind of having, having a view or having a, a, an approach to what next weekend will look like. Because if you come next weekend to the sound, and you have no preparation going on, and you have no idea what you're heading into, it is possible that you could misperceive it 
and you could misjudge it. And I want to do my very best, we do, to help you to know what you're walking into so that your heart might be prepared and ready to receive and ready to engage and ready to honestly partner with what God wants to do next weekend. So in order to do that, my hope today is to equip you with an introductory understanding of biblical prophecy. Now, I don't mean to be patronizing in in any way when I say that. I'm I'm, I'm not saying that none of you have an introductory understanding of biblical prophecy, but I just don't know. I don't know across this room what you have been taught, what you have learned, what tradition you have been raised in, and I'm not going to make any assumptions about it. So we're going to do this kind of overview of biblical prophecy today so that we can come next weekend unified, and by the way, so that we can understand this very important topic. See, the word prophecy can come with a certain stigma. It can come with some baggage in this postmodern Western world. This is what I would just lay before you today. Maybe prophecy, biblical prophecy, is something different than what you have learned it is. Just maybe. Maybe not. Like I said, I don't know. I don't know all of your stories. That's why I have to do this. First of all, I'd like to make sure that we're on the same page when it comes to a definition of the word. I think that's a really important place to start. If you were to just Google the word prophecy right now, At the very top, most likely what you would find in the part where you don't have to click on a link, it's just there, you know? I know that other people look up definitions on Google. It's not just me. Okay. We know all the words and what they mean. If you look up prophecy, right there in that top definition, it says simply this. A prediction. So I get why it says that because of the way that our world and our culture uses that word, but it's actually a very limited and unhelpful understanding of the word from a biblical perspective. Biblical prophecy is this, and granted, if you have a better definition written somewhere that is more biblically sound than this, praise the Lord. Let's, you can text me afterward, and and we can talk about how it's so good, but I'm also going to share with you a definition based on the biblical understanding of prophecy, and that is divinely inspired communication of revealed truth. I'll say it again, divinely inspired communication of revealed truth, okay? I'm going to put it even simpler because that could, be, that could feel maybe a little bit jargony, and that is this, the words of God spoken through the mouths of people, the words of God spoken through the mouths of people. I think that's a really simple and helpful understanding of what biblical prophecy is. Now, this divine-inspired communication can relate to the future. It can. But it is not limited to foretelling. That is, to tell of something before it happens. It's not limited to foretelling. In fact, it would be much better summarized by a very similar word, which is forth-telling. To tell forth, that's actually where we get the word prophecy. We get it from the Greek language, and that's what it means, to tell forth or to forth-tell. And simply, what, what, what is foretelling from a biblical perspective? Foretelling is simply to speak out truth revealed by God. Now, I typically try to tr- preach the scriptures in a certain way. I try to preach and teach in an expository way, where I read you a passive, passage of scripture, and then my goal is to unpack that particular passage for the sake of understanding and for the sake 
of um, being able to practice it, uh, for the sake of, of being able to apply it, okay? Now, today, I have to go about things a little bit differently. And so I wanted to let you know today is going to be more topical. Today, we're going to do more of a style of a biblical survey or a biblical overview or summary of what prophecy is and how we are to interact with it. Does that make sense? So I want you to understand that I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just trying to go and cherry pick scriptures. And, and my heart is not to go, I already have a conclusion in mind. And now I'm going to go find what proof texts I can find in order to prove what I already want to know. That's not the heart of this at all. I'm going to do my best to look at the whole of Scripture and then zoom out and say, what does the whole of Scripture say about prophecy? And then try to lay it before you. Does that make sense? Is that okay? So, I want to do this for two reasons, church. One, it's because prophecy is a valuable topic for us to understand as, as followers of Jesus. How do you know that, Seth? Well, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, do you know what Paul said? Or, sorry, chapter 12, do you know what he says? He says this, I do not want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. I think that's pretty clear. And then he goes on in those three chapters to talk about prophecy and tongues more than any other gift. I do not want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. If Paul didn't want us to be ignorant about spiritual gifts and it's written there, that means God does not want us to be ignorant of spiritual gifts. And that means I do not want us to be ignorant of spiritual gifts. And that means we should not, we should want to not be ignorant of spiritual gifts is the point made. You should want to not. <laughs> Sorry, that's, that sounds, that's awkward English. But yeah, anyway, we'll continue. And the second reason is so that, once again, we can all come with a common understanding, at least to some great extent, as we come next week, so that we can receive and we can partner with God. So I have way too many, 10 biblical truths to you, for you today about prophecy. Far, far too many truths, but we're going to make it. I want to give a little shout out. Craig Brown, if you don't know Craig, he's, he's one of our elders, one of our pastors as well. He's preaching at the, at the Coeur d'Alene campus right now. And his contribution to this message was phenomenal. I, I don't think I could have done this without him and, and his input and the, and the research that he did. So I want to give him a little shout out. Even though we're not streaming or anything, Craig, if you ever hear this, shout out to you, bro. Thank you for your help. I like to give credit where credit is due, okay? I just think it's weird to be like, anyway. Are you ready for Prophecy 101? Okay, here we go. Number one, truth number one, prophets in the Old Testament had a specific role, okay? Their role could be summarized as this. I'd like you to try and remember this or write it down. They were covenant enforcers. That's what Old Testament prophets, their primary job was, covenant enforcers. This was their main job. A lot of us think Old Testament prophets, their main job was to tell about future things that were going to happen. That was part of their job. Their main job was to call the people of God to covenant faithfulness through speaking to them as his representative. This is the job of the prophet. Hey, Israel. Hey, you remember, you remember that covenant that, that God made with you? Do you remember how God came to, to Moses on Sinai? And do you remember the agreement that y'all entered into? Yeah, by the way, that still stands, and you still need to honor it. And also, by the way, you haven't been. That was the primary role of the prophet. They often served as counselors to kings and rulers. And they, they did, at times, foretell future outcomes of current events. That's true. And they also did speak of the future reality of the coming Messiah. 
They absolutely did. That was part of their role. But their messages, they typically fell into four categories. Probably won't remember these unless you write them down, but I think that they're helpful in understanding the role of the Old Testament prophet. Number one, indictment. Now, that, a lot of times we hear that in terms of a, a legal term, and it is kind of like that. And basically what they did as indictment was telling the people what they have done wrong, okay? That was a major role of the prophets. Hey, you done messed up, okay? The indictment. Number two, their role was one of judgment, okay? Ooh, cozy. It's like this. So he, indictment is you tell them what they did wrong, Okay, that's what the prophet says. And then judgment is, here's what God's about to do about it. It's okay if that doesn't make you feel warm. It's the truth and you need to understand it. Number three, instruction. Okay, so we know so far, they told the people what they did wrong. They told the people what God was gonna do about it. Instruction is, they told the people how they should be responding. Hey, you done wrong. God's gonna judge that wrongness. By the way, here's a more healthy way to handle this situation. And then finally, aftermath, which were messages of hope talking about the good things that were going to follow the judgment. It's really important that we understand that last piece because the prophets truly weren't all doom and gloom. Now, if you go and you sit down and you just read straight through Isaiah or Jeremiah, it's a lot. And there is a lot of you done messed up Israel in those books. But you have to recognize that it's a part of a bigger picture of what they were setting up. You've done wrong. Here's what God's going to do about it. Here's a healthy way to respond. By the way, after the judgment, something beautiful is going to be birthed. Something beautiful is coming, and you are not without hope. Now, you can see the role of the Old Testament prophets on display in several areas of the Old Testament, but I would say First and Second Kings are a great place to look because you get to see the lives of Elijah and Elisha, two very important prophets in the Old Testament. You get to see kind of how their roles played out even with interaction with kings. And then there is an entire genre of the scriptures that is dedicated to prophecy. They're known as the prophets or the major and minor prophets or the books of prophecy. And that is the last 17 books of the Old Testament are the prophets. It's a lot. It's a big chunk. I don't know if anyone in here has ever sat down and you only did that as your Bible reading for however long it took you. I have not done that, but I, I feel like I would need to like jump, or, jump and get some other stuff during that time because it can be, it can be heavy. The Old Testament prophetic books, those 17 books can be heavy. There's a reason for it, though. Number two. This is truth number two about prophecy. Prophets in the Old Testament were held to the standard of perfect accuracy. Perfect accuracy. That was the standard, period. Only certain people in the Old Testament were called to be prophets and gifted in this way, and this calling was not that common. If someone claimed to be a prophet, they would be held to mortal accountability for their prophecies. Oh, you're a prophet, huh? You got, you got a prophecy for us, huh? Okay. If someone claimed to be a prophet, if they led people astray or prophesied falsely, the penalty was death. Seth, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't, I don't remember, I don't remember reading that. I'll, I'll remind you. Deuteronomy 18:20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, 
that I have not commanded him to speak or speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. There was no room for error in Old Testament prophecy. Doesn't have to be cozy, but it's true. Truth number three about prophecy is this. Prophecy in the New Testament and the modern era has a specific purpose. We read, we just read a few moments ago. This is, this is where we're hanging out today in 1 Corinthians 14. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Another translation you might be more familiar with. For their strengthening and encouragement and comfort. It says one verse later. The one who prophesies builds up the church. You know, that word build up, it's actually the same exact word that's used throughout the the New Testament for building a house. It's meant to convey the same kind of thing. Prophecy builds the church. Later in verse 31, it says, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. Now, this isn't to say that New Testament and modern prophecy needs to always be sunshines and rainbows. Okay? I don't, I, don't want you to, I, don't, I don't want you to get the impression that what I'm saying is that New Testament prophecy is always just lovey-dovey and just really make me feel good all the time. That's not, necessar- that, that, that's not the point that I'm trying to get across. But what I am trying to say is that New Testament prophecy does appear to play a role that is distinct from Old Testament prophecy. And that role is to build up, to encourage, and to comfort. Think of it like this. Old Testament prophecy, indictment, judgment, instruction, aftermath. New Testament prophecy, build up, encourage, and comfort. There is a shift in that. Truth number four about prophecy. One who prophesies in the New Testament and modern era is not held to the standard of perfect accuracy. In verse, tw- in, verse t- in verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 14, it says this, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Then in 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 through 21, it says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. In 1 Corinthians 13, 9, it says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Then three verses later, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The ideas conveyed in this passage, these passages display a marked difference between the descriptions of Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy. Of course, what I, what I don't want you to hear right now is that I'm trying, to, I'm trying to make an argument that the Bible is giving an excuse for being presumptuous. That's not what I'm saying at all. This does not mean that, you, that we are allowed to go around and say, God told me anything that I feel like he told me or that I think he told, or, or that I want him to be telling me. That does not mean that. It does not give an excuse for being loose-lipped and using the name of the Lord honestly in vain. I mean, I don't mean to make it heavy, but it's kind of, I just got to tell you what it is. 
You prophesy when you didn't hear from God, you're using his name in vain. And that is wrong. And that's grave. What I am telling you is that in New Testament prophecy, we recognize that it is partial, that it is to be weighed, that it is to be tested. And if when someone misses the mark, we don't shout that they're a false prophet and then kill them. Fair enough. Thank you for the new covenant. Truth number five about prophecy. Some prophecy is conditional and some prophecy is absolute. Conditional, absolute. There are times when the Lord speaks through people and the prophetic word that is given will come to pass regardless of response or behavior. It is absolute. Okay, I want to give an example of this. An example of absolute prophecy can be found in 1 Samuel chapter 7. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, God speaks to the prophet Nathan. You don't know about Nathan? Super cool guy. He was a prophet who brought counsel and brought prophetic words to King David. And there was one or two times when Nathan had to kind of tell David off. I mean, that's pretty fly. If you can be the if you can be if you can tell off the king. I mean, you better have someone in your corner, and Nathan did, and his name is Yahweh. Anyway, Nathan came to King David, and he prophesied. And, he, and he, he, was the, he was the conduit for the covenant that would be given to David. And what was that covenant? That his kingdom would be established forever through his offspring. Now, what happened after that? Well, David had a bloodline. I'll say that about it. He had one. And there were people there. <laughs> and it was full of unfaithfulness and rebellion against God and heinous acts. Absolutely heinous, evil. I don't even want to talk about him, acts. I mean, I, I, I could tell you if you asked me, but you should go and read First and Second Kings. And you will know that that covenant was not resting on the behavior of his bloodline. No. That's not what happened. The word that was given to David would be fulfilled in Jesus, despite the poor response of multiple, multiple generations. Other times, God speaks through a person, and the prophetic word that is given is conditional. There are decisions and actions that must be made in order for the prophetic word to come to pass. There's a partnership that has to take place. An example of this can be seen in Deuteronomy 8, which is a very special passage to my heart. Deuteronomy 8, there's a section of that, of that chapter on which we kind of moved to Coeur d'Alene and planted Heart of the City on, on, on a particular part of Deuteronomy 8 that talks about a good land where the hills you can find copper. Kellogg. Anyway. The thing in Deuteronomy 8 is that God speaks through Moses, so Moses is prophesying, about the beautiful things that he is going to do for Israel. But those things are contingent upon the way that Israel walks out the promise that they have been given. There's a contingency in that prophetic word. Many times we get prophetic words and then we expect God to do all the footwork. But that's not actually how it usually works. Most of the time, let me just tell you, or maybe you've experienced it yourself, you receive a prophetic word 
And that's when the battle begins. I'm going to say that again. You receive a prophetic word, and that's where the battle begins. And I'm telling you, when that happens to you, you're in good company. You want to know who that also happened to? Abraham. You want to know who that also happened to? Joseph. You want to know who that also happened to? David. They received the promises of God, and then the battle began. It's the beginning of the journey, not the end of the journey. I would encourage you, friends. Maybe you're coming next weekend, and you're like, I really hope I get a word. I hope you get a word, too. But what have you done with the words that you've been given? Have you partnered with God? Have you actually walked them out? Or did you get a little voice memo? Or did you write it on a note? Or did you, And then you just put it in the filing cabinet and you went, well, I got a word from God. Yippity-doo-dah. And the reason I say it like that is because if you don't partner with the Holy Spirit in a word that he has spoken over your life, you are dishonoring the word of the Lord. And why do you need him to give you another word if you haven't done anything with what he already told you? Truth number six. There are three general forms of prophetic ministry in the New Testament that kind of work together, okay? First Corinthians chapter 12, we see three gifts, and these gifts are kind of partnering together in prophetic ministry. The first is word of knowledge. Second is word of wisdom. And then prophecy, or, which we already talked about. But these things work together. A word of knowledge is this. When a person speaks forth knowledge that has been revealed to them supernaturally by God, okay? Sometimes this can materialize as this. Let's say that someone receives a word of knowledge. They know someone's spouse's name or they know their profession or they know something that happened to them as a kid and they shouldn't know that information you see that's not just a spectacle so we can go "Ooh, that's that's kind of crazy that gives me goosebumps no what it does is it actually opens the hearts of people a word of knowledge this is what i've seen a word of knowledge can tear down walls that would take 10 years of relationship to tear down and in one moment a word of knowledge accurately given Those walls come down and all of a sudden someone's heart is going, God, whatever you have to say next, whatever you have to say next, I'm ready to receive because I know there's no way that you could call that out unless it was you. It's the power of the word of knowledge. Partners with prophecy. Number two, the word of wisdom. It's similar to the word of knowledge, but it's a little bit different. It's when someone is supernaturally uh, able to communicate because of God speaking to them wisdom about a situation or, or counsel or uh, an understanding about it or, or the way that someone should go about it. It's, it's, it's like, okay, now I know how you should understand this or now I know how you should go about doing this. And again, it's this encouragement for the situation, let's say I'm in, someone comes and gives me a word of wisdom and it's like, bing. It's like, I've been, I've been wringing my hands over this. I've been ruminating and racking my brain about this. And all of a sudden, a word from the Lord, a word of wisdom, it shifts things. And once again, it softens the heart so the heart can be ready to receive whatever God has to say. And then finally, prophecy, which I've already, which I've already defined. But I want you to be aware of this, friends. That the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge and, and prophecy, they work together to build up. They work together to encourage, and to bring comfort. Truth number seven. There are three general divisions of prophetic ministry. Okay, we're going to say general divisions. Now, is this word 
like the way that the Bible says it outright. No, no, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to use a, a helpful, understandable term so that we can kind of grab hold of this. Division one is this, the momentary grace to prophesy. Okay, the momentary grace to prophesy. Some call this division of prophetic ministry the spirit of prophecy. I'm not against using that terminology, but the reason why I'm saying it the way I am is because I believe it, it, it does provide a little bit more clarity because when you see the term spirit of prophecy in the actual scriptures, it's hard to dis- decipher and call that this. Does that make sense? Okay, so we're gonna say a momentary grace to prophesy. This is when someone is endowed by God with the ability to prophesy in a particular situation. And that doesn't mean that they have this persistent and ongoing gift of prophecy. Okay, this happens a lot of times in situations where other prophets are present, honestly. This is where, I'm just letting you know in a practical sense how this often occurs, is where there are people who are really gifted in prophecy, and then there's someone who doesn't really have, uh, I would call a great apportioning of the prophetic gift, but in that atmosphere, all of a sudden, the Spirit comes upon this person in such a way that in that moment, they absolutely can prophesy. Okay, we're going to call that a momentary grace to be able to prophesy, okay? And it doesn't... So another prophet doesn't have to be there. I'm not, I'm not trying to give that in a restrictive form. I'm saying that's a tendency that we see. And we actually see it in the scriptures with Saul when he prophesied in Samuel 10.10. 10. He gets with the prophets. All of a sudden, the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he begins to prophesy. Now, did he go on and consistently be a prophet? No. Was he considered in the office of a prophet? No. But in that moment, there was a grace for him to prophesy. Division two is the gift of prophecy. We recognize the gift of prophecy as, as something that is God has sovereignly apportioned. He's given a portion to. That's the way that 1 Corinthians 12 describes it. He sovereignly apportioned prophecy as a gift to a person, and they are able to prophesy more consistently and more regularly. Their ministry is marked by, or at least includes, prophecy on a regular basis. The gift of prophecy is discussed throughout 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Now, the third division is something that we call the office of the prophet. I like to be careful about that because that's not the way the New Testament actually describes it, but it can be a helpful delineator. You could just say the prophet, but the office of the prophet helps distinguish it from the, from the gift of prophecy. So I think, I think it's helpful to use. We recognize the office of the prophet in someone's life typically when they have shown to be a proven prophet over a period of time an extended period of time. And typically they are able to actually equip other people in prophecy. Okay, we recognize the office of the prophet on someone who is proven, usually over a long period of time, and we recognize it over someone who's able to equip. Okay? Now, of course we would affirm that someone in the office of the prophet has the gift of prophecy. Yes, absolutely. But it is this gift that has been developed and that has been matured in this person to the extent which it's something that is recognized beyond a gift because it's not that they just are able to operate in it, but they carry this authority and being able to impart and to be able to equip and to be proven in this area. Even though we don't hold people to mortal accountability and prophecy anymore, there is still such a thing as being a proven prophet under the new covenant and an unproven prophet under the under the new covenant there's if just because you prophesy doesn't mean that you're proven you may have you may have done your very best to tune in to what god was saying and, and miss the mark you're not guaranteed to be proven just because you stepped out of the boat to prophesy 
Does that make sense? We gather the idea of the office of the prophet primarily from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. It talks about what is called sometimes the five offices or the five ascension gifts. And what they do is they're given to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Okay, truth number eight. Love must be the motivation of prophetic ministry. I'm going to say that one again because I don't want you to get all wrapped up in swirly twirlies. Love must be the motivation of prophetic ministry. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2. This is just one chapter before our main passage today and actually leads directly into it. Listen to this. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. I am nothing. Let's not get too impressed with ourselves because we have gifts. Because gifts not motivated by love are not impressive to God at all. Prophecy must be rooted and grounded in love. If you hear a word from God and you can't share it from a motivation of love, you should probably hold on to that word until you can grab hold of God's heart for that word. Because if you don't grab a hold of God's heart, after you've heard a word, you're missing a key part of the word for that person. Because listen to this, a true word with the wrong heart can actually bear bad fruit. A true word with the wrong heart can actually bear bad fruit. It's sad, it's a bummer, but it's true. Love must be the motivation when we prophesy because love is God's motivation when he speaks. I'm going to say that again because I, I want you to understand the why. It's like, well, I feel like I'm more of just kind of an Old Testament prophet and I can just kind of call people out on their crud. That's how I feel like I am. Well, I'm sorry, your feeling is wrong. Your feeling is unbiblical. When we prophesy, it must be motivated by love. I'm not saying the Old Testament prophets weren't motivated by love, but hopefully you, you, you're getting a hold of what I'm saying today. We must be motivated by love when we prophesy because God is motivated by love when he speaks. It's critical. It's necessary. Truth number nine, we should desire to prophesy. You too. When I say we, I mean you. We should desire to prophesy. And some, for some of you, you're like, that's outlandish. You're like, no, 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 not me. Well, let's just hear what the Bible says. The first verse of the passage that we open says this. Number, verse starting verse one. Pursue love. Good, we covered that, right? And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Okay, so the scriptures say that I should earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that I may prophesy. Just in case it wasn't clear enough in verse 39. So my brothers, I'm gonna add a little paraphrase just to be clear. <laughs> earnestly desire to prophesy. That's what it says. Here's the deal. A lot of us are coming next weekend and we would love to receive a prophetic word and I hope that you do and that's a beautiful thing to desire that. But what if we didn't just come expecting and desiring to receive a word? What if we came desiring and expecting to give a prophetic word next weekend? You're like, well, I just, that's what the prophets are for. Well, yes, we're bringing them in to lead the way. We're bringing them in to lead the way. But let let me just challenge you. The scriptures challenge us 
that we are to desire to prophesy. And I wonder if God would want to plant that desire inside of your heart. What if we were more eager? What if we were more eager for God to speak through us than for us to hear him speak through someone else? What if we actually had that eagerness, that earnest desire inside of us that says, God, use me? Which leads into the final truth I'm gonna share with you today on prophecy, and that is prophecy is part of normal Christianity. It's okay if you don't believe me. Well, it's not really okay if you don't believe me. I'm, I'm cool with you if you don't believe me, but you should, because you should believe the Bible. Don't, it's not from me. Just believe God's word. Verse five that we read from 1 Corinthians 14 says this. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. prophesy. Prophecy is not just for a little group of spiritual elites. If you were told that, you were told wrong by somebody, not God. Now, whether God desires to give you a momentary grace to prophesy or he desires to give you a great apportioning of the prophetic gift, of, of the gift of prophecy, or he desires to establish you as a proven prophet in the office Whatever the case might be, he wants to speak through you. Some of you don't believe me. I wish you would. Look at the beautiful thing that occurs when we all prophesy. Okay? This is one of my favorite scriptures in the whole Bible. Are you allowed to have favorites? I don't know, but I have one. God and I might have to hash that out one day. I have some favorites, and this is one of them. I pray often, God, would you make us a 1 Corinthians chapter 14 church? God, would you make us a 1 Corinthians chapter 14 church? Now, why would I pray something like that? Because of these two verses. Because of these two verses. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Do not write yourself off, church, as God doesn't or can't speak through me. Because do you know what happens when we all buy into the truth of God? When we all say, okay, yes, Lord, you can use me. And when all prophesy and the lost person or the outsider walks in, their hearts fling wide open and they're ready to receive Jesus. See, I think there's many people in the room today who could say, yes, I want the lost to be saved. Are you willing to be a part of it? Yes, I'm willing to, I'm willing to preach the gospel. Are you willing to offer yourself up as a vessel to speak from the voice of the Lord? Are you willing to offer yourself up and say, hey, I'm not really comfortable with prophecy, but Lord, if you want to speak through me, which you do, you do want to speak through me, I'm willing, and I'd love for you to do that. I wonder how much we're not experiencing in this era simply because we're not even agreeing with God. Well, I haven't seen it. Well, have you agreed with him? Because there's this principle in the scriptures, okay? According to your faith. Have you agreed with the word of the Lord and partnered with him? And maybe you start seeing manifestations when you say, okay, God, I actually believe that you tell the truth. God wants to communicate with us. And, of course, he has already done this in a 
beautiful and primary way through the scriptures. I'm not, I'm not bringing the scriptures down a notch by any means in this way. I, I want you to understand. I survive on the scriptures, okay? I, I, it's something, the Bible is something I consume every day. It's something that I, I, I hunger for and it actually shapes me and changes me. I'm not saying, well, you don't have to listen to the scriptures, just, you know, listen to prophetic words for people. Not at all. In fact, the Bible is in fact the very measuring line and the standard by which we measure every other prophetic word, if and even if it is prophetic. If it disagrees with scripture, not from God. God is not double-minded, the Holy Spirit and the Bible, they're on the same team, okay? So that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the Bible is precious. It's the Word of God. And by the way, He's still speaking. That's all I'm saying. He's still speaking. And He still wants us to hear Him. And He still wants us to be the vessels who speak forth His Word. He is still drawing people through His voice. I wonder if there's anyone in the room this morning who... You haven't felt close to God. You felt far from Him. Maybe you felt unworthy to be in His presence or unworthy to hear His voice. You go, how am I supposed to hear the voice of God when I've been far from Him? When I haven't even put, I, I, don't, I don't even know if I believed in Him. Why would He want to speak through me? This is what I would say to you. Is that we have all fallen short. We have all sinned and fallen short of the, of the glory of God. We have all done wrong, and yes, in our sin, we were separated from God. That's a sad truth, but there's better news than the truth than that sad truth, and that is God does not like to be separate from his kids. Can you say amen? I'm so thankful God doesn't like to be separate from his kids. So what did he do? He made a way for that separation to be removed. How did he do it? He sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life, to take away the sin of the world by dying on a cross for our wrongdoing, he paid the price so that we could be forgiven and we could be reconciled to the Father and so we could experience eternal life. And by the way, he didn't just die, he rose again and now he reigns as Lord and as King and he has an invitation for you and that is trust in You want to spend forever with me and my father? Trust in me. I'm already the king. I'm already the Lord. You can't change it with your faith or your lack of it. You might as well acknowledge the truth. You might as well trust in me.